Well, welcome back, everyone, to Seminary Unboxed, the official podcast of Wesley Biblical Seminary. I am Matt Ayers, president of Wesley Biblical Seminary and host of Seminary Unboxed. And as usual, I have a special guest with me today. I have Dr. Dan Block. Welcome, Dan. Good, good afternoon to you. Yes, it's good Thank to be you. here. Thank you. Thank you. Let me, for our listeners, let me introduce you just a little bit of biographical information. Uh, Dr. Block is the Gunther Nodler Professor or Nodler Professor of Emer- Professor Emeritus of Old Testament at Wheaton College. His scholarly work focuses on the books of Deuteronomy, Judges, Ruth, and Ezekiel. My favorite, by the way, Ezekiel commentary is written by Dr. Block in the Nicot series. Uh, as an Old Testament scholar, Dr. Block is passionate about the recovery of the Old Testament by and for the church. I would add that that is a shared passion of mine as well, and especially uh, highlighting the by the church, uh, spirit-inspired reading of that text as a text that is for us today. Uh, nonetheless, continuing on, his areas of interest span most of the Old Testament, and after spending 14 years on Ezekiel and four on Judges, and Ruth for the past five years, uh, he's been actually that this is a little bit dated, but uh, more recently he has been absorbed by the gospel according to Moses as set out in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, he's also been heavily involved in the production of the New Living Translation of the Bible. Uh, mo- this most uh, recent manuscript that's come out in book in a book format has been uh, titled Covenant: The Framework of God's Grand Plan of Redemption. Uh, And that's the book that we're going to be discussing today, Covenant, the Framework of God's Grand Plan of Redemption. And so uh, a wonderful book, a tremendous contribution, not just to the field of Old Testament studies, but to biblical studies and uh, for the church in particular, and helping us to go deep on our understanding of the role of covenant uh, for Christians today. So Dr. Block, um, tell us about this book, Covenant, the Framework of God's Grand Plan of Redemption. Well, this comes at the end of, uh, you know, four or five decades of wrestling with biblical texts and discussing biblical texts with students and colleagues and in four or five different institutions and, and actually communicating what I've been learning all over the world. So we have had lots of conversations in Europe and Asia and Africa and on the things here. But as I was uh, retiring and contemplating what's left undone, it dawned on me that that we need to do a volume that is simply a here I stand kind of statement. After, After five decades of study and teaching and ministry, How do the scriptures make sense to you? And what is it about them that brings them alive? So when the publisher came to me and said, have have you got anything that we can publish for you? We talked about a couple of things and this is the one that we hit on. It turned out to be slightly larger than we had expected. It's always that way, isn't it? Uh, But in any case, they gave me free reign just to not think out loud, but think on my computer and put down, you know, the thoughts as they came. Uh, It's a book in which I am not trying to 
sound like this is the only way people can read the Bible. This is a biblical theology. It's not the biblical theology. But it, it struck me over the years that uh, there is a theme that runs through all of Scripture after the fall. It's not there before the fall, but after the fall, how can we fix the problem that sin has created? And the answer is covenant. So uh, this is a book in which I trace the history of the covenant and its place within God's plan of redemption. And I deal with all the major covenants, that is theological covenants in scripture. Uh, I divide them into two parts, not like most people do. They divide them into unconditional and conditional covenants or, you know, they've got their own categories. But I divide them into two categories, one of which is a communal, or should we say ecclesial, covenantal concept. It creates a community that God's, God intends to send out on a mission, and that is to bring blessing and peace and joy to a world under the curse. So that's the communal covenant. Then the second sort, class of covenants, is the administrative covenant. Administrative covenants are not creating a community, but they install within the covenant community a divinely appointed agent whose function it is to keep the wheels of this machine well-oiled so that the ecclesial, the communal covenant, flourishes. And we have two illustrations of that, one of which is the Adamic covenant, uh, not in Genesis 1 and 2. We'll talk about what is a covenant in a moment. But starting in chapter 3 and then being spelled out in chapter 9, often called the Noahic Covenant or Noachian Covenant. I actually think it's the Adamic Covenant because it seeks to reinstall the descendants of Noah where Adam was. And the echoes of Genesis 1 and Genesis 9 are quite intentional. So it, within this covenant, administrative covenant, God assigns to human beings the role of governing the world for him. So that uh, we, as images of God, are endowed with glory and majesty, Psalm 8, but assigned the duty of seeing to it that the world flourishes. That's our task. It's not our world. We were not created. It was not created for us, which is a common problem these days. It's an anthropocentric theology or a cosmology. No, we were created for it. 
In Genesis 2, the Lord says to Adam, the man, uh, you are to serve and guard the garden. The word is avad, to serve. It is not normally used for till. It is sometimes used of field, dirt, but we don't have a field here. We got the garden. I know it's related, but it is to serve the garden. Well, if that's the case, who's the boss here? Whose interest is the servant supposed to serve? And of course, it is, it is the world. Uh, God has installed us as his deputy and his agents of providential administration. That's the first one. Then when we get to, I mean, within that one, you've got the ecclesial cosmic covenant that God makes with, through Noah, but with the world, the cosmos in Genesis 9, uh, uh, Noah is the agent through which that one is implemented. That's the cosmic covenant. But we blew that one. So what does God do? God calls a member of the human race and appoints that person as his agent of blessing in a world that continues under the curse, curse even after Noah. That didn't solve the problems. And so he called Abraham. And from the beginning, this covenant is not only with Abraham. Is with Abraham and his descendants. And so that gets me going on that second ecclesial covenant. God says, I, uh, you are to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And when God makes his covenant with Israel at, at Sinai, he says, now then, if you will listen to my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession, my royal priesthood, my holy nation, for all the earth is mine. What's happening here is the descendants of Abraham in fulfillment of Genesis 17, 7 are being, uh, what's it, integrated into the Abrahamic covenant. And here's where I am really radical. There are not many people who talk in these terms, but I view the Abrahamic covenant, what I call the Israelite covenant, the covenant made uh, on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy, and the new covenant I call one covenant that is revealed in four stages of Israel's history. The seed is planted with Abraham. It is, a, it, it, it is made with Abraham. It is established with the Israelites at Sinai. It is confirmed with the next generation. After that generation died in the desert, before they enter the land, it's done one more time. And it is fully realized in the new Israelite covenant. And this is Jeremiah 33. And here we have to emphasize Israelite. If you had never read that text or read theologians on that text, 
uh, before, but you came across it for the first time, you would realize how parochial the whole thing is. And uh, it's called, the, I, I will make a new covenant with you, but the, there's nothing new about it. Uh, it has four elements. Uh, forgiveness of sins. I'll put my Torah in your heart. I will, uh, they will all know me and I will be your God and you will be my people. None of this is new. The only thing that's new is all, all, all. Finally, there's coming a day when all Israel will be, well, the boundaries of spiritual Israel and physical Israel will be coterminous. In any case, that's the uh, ecclesial missional covenant. Uh, and then uh, administering that is the agent, David. God appoints David, not for David's sake. This is so clear in 2 Samuel 7. But for the sake of the people he has called. And David's task is to, and, and, and his descendants, is to see to it that this house is in order and that the mission goes out to the ends of the earth. Um, curiously, these two figures, Adam and David, are picked up in the New Testament as figures for the Messiah. Jesus is both a descendant of Adam therefore the savior of all humanity, but he's also a descendant of David, therefore uh, the, the king of all humanity. And there you have the, the royal motif really concretized. Adam is a royal figure, uh, but David is explicitly royal. And so th that's all lays the groundwork for the messianic vision of the New Testament. So that's how I see it. And the second half or second uh, 30 or 40% of the book is how the New Testament picks up these themes and works with them. Wonderful. So a couple of follow-up questions. What a great, what a great overview. Uh, you said a couple of things that maybe asked, maybe want to ask follow-up questions, but as well as clarification. So uh, first, I think is with regard to the Jeremiah passage, uh, there, there will be a new covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant. And you comment, there'll be nothing new about it except all, right? The way that I've always understood it, and in fact, I'm working on a book now on the Holy Spirit, um, is that is what would be different would be the law would be written on their hearts. The idea that that's a promise of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming in and indwelling the believer, shaping the believer to the profile, the image of God as is codified in, in the Torah, in the covenant as a profile, the image of God. Um, and I saw that as kind of being talking about the same thing that Ezekiel's talking about. You know, I will give you a, a heart, a different heart. I'll circumcise your heart, give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you. So, so help me understand that. Is that when you say that uh, the law will be inside of them, is that not a new thing? I don't think so. I okay, don't so think, tell me. I do. And here... Again, I don't know many theologians, certainly I know no New Testament scholars who follow me. I'm probably wrong. But how in the world do you get a Josiah? In that Without the law written on the heart, right. World, how do you get a Boaz in the dark days of the judges? 
How do you get a Caleb who's not even Israelite? He's a Kenizzite. Who is full after God and has a different spirit. In my view, what's new is the eschatological vision of the entire nation. This is Paul in right. Romans 11. The entire yeah. nation being not just descendants of Abraham physically, but descendants of Abraham spiritually. And I spiritually, am fully, right. I am fully convinced that Abraham was as indwelt by the Spirit of God as we are. How else does salvation work? How else? Or or, or are they not regenerated? How how do you account for their fidelity to God in dark world right. if the spirit of God is not inside them? Now, back to the issue of the Torah on their hearts. There are lots of people in the First Testament who had the Torah in their hearts. Sure, sure. Read Psalm 119. It's all about that. Thy word have I hid in my heart. That's the Torah in the heart. Mine. 50% of the time, the word lave means mine. So I, I am convinced that they shared the same spirit as we do. They say, shared the same forgiveness based upon the work of Christ that we do. His work is the basis of every every act of grace God has ever performed. And uh, there are lots of New Testament texts that talk about before the foundation of the world. I think there are eight right. or nine of those. Track those someday. And it's obvious that God had this plan in, in, in place before the world was even created. So that when the Israelites brought their sacrifices and their offerings... These were divinely gracious, divine gifts that God gave them by which they could trigger for them the forgiving work of Christ. It's like when we turn the light on in this room, we flick a switch. When I flick that switch, I don't make light. The electricity for that light, at least in Chicago, usually, is flowing through those coils and cables up there 24 hours a day. And in my view, the retrospective effectiveness of Christ's work, you know that to God, time means nothing. Right, transcendence. In God's mind, when was Jesus crucified? When was Jesus, when did, when did he write down our names and on what basis? Before the foundation of the world. So these, the tabernacle rituals and the sacrifices, these were divinely provided switches by which that grace that is made possible through the work of Christ could be uh, applied, or let's turn it the other way. Bringing the sacrifices in faith 
And according to God's graciously revealed will, and in my view, the more detailed the, the instructions, the, more, the greater the grace, uh, this was God's way of saying, look, you have access to the grace of Christ. Now, of course, the problem is the Old Testament doesn't talk about the work of Christ that way. In fact, it's not until, until Isaiah 53 that the messianic strand of revelation links with the sacrificial. Never happens before that. Right. But that, does that mean it's not there? Just because people aren't talking about regeneration, the work, of, well, they are talking about the spirit. They talk about the spirit a lot in the first testament. Sure. They don't talk, they don't talk about the spirit uh, much inside a person, but Caleb possesses a different spirit. That's very close. Ezekiel's metaphor of I will put my spirit within you and my heart within you makes no sense if people aren't thinking in those terms. So that I think what Ezekiel and Jeremiah are saying is that there's coming a day that when that which is true of individual believers within Israel, and they've always been only a, major, a minority, there's coming a day when all will enjoy that. So, so and that, that then would be the difference. One of the differences in any cases, at least pertains to this point, between the old or first covenant and the second yeah. covenant is uh, the same thing that's true for these select few, or let's say the minority, becomes yeah. available to all people. That's the big shift, one of the big shifts into the new covenant. Um, yeah, and I think yeah. what's new, what's what's new in the new is aha. I get it. So this is how that works. On what grounds did the Israelites have confidence that they were forgiven? Read Psalm thirty-two. Congratulations, or all oh, the privilege of the man whose sin is forgiven, whose transgression is covered. He. David knows he's been forgiven. On what grounds? The word of God. God said, you do this, this happens. He didn't explain fully how it works. But he gave them. I mean, when I work with my computer, I don't know how it works, how the guts of the thing work. I, but I turn right. on the switch and it works sometimes. And, and, and so knowledge of the system doesn't mean or absence of knowledge of the system doesn't mean absence of the system right right this this is one of the evidential fallacies we commit archaeologists do too absence of evidence is evidence of absence so right that, right what happens in the new testament is oh we see it, and the other thing that we realize, and we're fully Trinitarian, as Jesus is leaving, he says, I'm not actually leaving. I'll be with you, but what does he do? He breathes on them the Holy Spirit. John? 
This yep. is not a salvation moment. This is a commissioning moment so that they go out empowered by his spirit. And the whole book of Acts describes how that worked. And it's, it's, it's the authentication of the apostles as his agents with power. And so I think, you know, back to your Pentecost thing. I actually don't think Pentecost is uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's a different metaphor. We're conflating things. What happens is the, it's, it's what I call the liquid metaphor. There are four texts in the First Testament that talk about the Lord pouring out his spirit on. Four. Uh, two in Isaiah, one in Ezekiel, and one in Joel. All of, all of them involve the new eschatological reality. All of them involve the restoration of Israel to full relationship with God. And all of them. The pouring out of the spirit, this is, this is my interpretation, is the seal of this people as the covenant people. So what's happening in the book of Acts, you have it happen in four stages. Stage one, Acts two, Pentecost. Well, whom did that involve? They were Jews from all over the world, inside the promised land, who believed in Jesus. No, they're talking all kinds of tongues and languages, but that's because they come from a world, but they're all Jews. The text tells us that three or four times. Jews who believe in Jesus. Second, in Acts uh, seven or eight, uh, the, the Samaritans. They come to faith and the apostles go that they can't believe that they're believing. And when the apostles appear, the same phenomenon occurs. Now, you don't have the full description of what's happening, but it is another Pentecostal moment, except the name Pentecost is associated with the word for 50. It's on the 50th day after Passover. But, but these are half Jews physically and spiritually. They have the Torah, they don't have the prophets, they don't have the Psalms, but they have Moses. But they come to faith, they experience. Stage three, Acts 10, Cornelius. Who's he? Well, he's a Roman. At least he's in the Roman army. And he and his family come to faith and the thing breaks out all over. Well, what, who is he? He is a God-fearer. Now, in the New Testament, in my understanding, that means he is somebody who has had close contact with Jews and Judaism and its monotheism. He is a God-fearer as opposed to a pagan, but he's still in the land. He comes to faith in Jesus, and the same thing happens. And then the last one is in Acts 18 or 19, where it's in Ephesus. Now we're way out there, far from the homeland. They come to faith and the same thing happens. So to me, this is God redefining the covenant community in four stages. 
But now membership is not possible apart from faith in Christ. And this, of course, is Paul's big point in Romans and Galatians. But it starts with fulfilling his promise to Abraham in at Pentecost. Then it expands in four. And so to this day, I mean, there may be a trickle of Jewish blood in my veins, but I did the ancestry test and it didn't show up. There are some other surprises there. But I am one of these that's been integrated into the covenant community uh, by virtue of my God-given faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement for me and, and so uh, so that's how I view the new covenant in the New Testament. Hebrews is very clear. Apart from Jesus' work, Jeremiah's vision of the new covenant can never be realized. But uh, it is Jesus' work that's the basis of all of this. So, so you made a statement before, uh, the rhetorical question, how do we fix the problem that sin has created? The answer is covenant. Yeah. So a follow a follow up question from that statement I'd like to ask is what is sin? Uh, and you're in studying covenant and because Paul talks about sin came in, there wasn't an accounting for sin before, you know, the command was given. And so how, how would you kind of encapsulate your idea of sin within this framework of thinking about covenant? Well, uh, sin is what makes a covenant necessary. In my view, a covenant is a formal process by which a relationship that is not natural is created or by which a natural relationship that has disintegrated is fixed. So now let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2. All the relationships are natural. God creates the world and at the end he puts man and woman on the earth. And then he says, he pronounces it very good. Tov ma'od, super good. And then in chapter 2, he puts him in the garden. This is now the capital from which you are to reign, extend your reign. Only with respect to humans are we commanded to fill the earth. No other species of creature does. There are creatures everywhere, but we are to go everywhere being agents of divine providence. All is well until the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. What? Uh, we can talk in terms of suzerain vassal relationship. God is the creator. Human beings are created to be his agents, his servants. But we don't have a covenant yet. We don't need a covenant. Which is why, in my view, we don't need a temple in Eden either. God comes down to Eden in the cool of the day to just for fellowship with his agents. That's what he's doing. He's checking up and, and delighting in the way his agent is performing. And of course, when you get to chapter three, very disappointing performance we have here. But prior to that, and here, I, I suppose now we can, we, we, 
Well, let me just illustrate covenant again. Uh, a natural relationship. When my wife Ellen and I got married, <laughs> we went through a formal ceremony by which a relationship was created officially. Now it had it had been birthed earlier already on the and the seed was was planted, but this was the formal moment when the world recognizes, yes, they are one. So that's the creation of a relationship that's not natural, but it's right and it's good. There are other places where that happens. The other, the other illustration I have, I use is we have two, two kids. We have a son who's an adopted boy. We thought we'd never have any children. And so we adopted. Well, guess what? Three or four years later, all of a sudden there she showed up. She's our daughter. We've never had to make a covenant with her. She was born into this one. She had no choice. <laughs> with, right, our, right. with our son, he wasn't naturally ours. And he comes from completely different stock. And the gene pool is so different from his 70 cousins. There's only one like him in this tribe. Right. But he's, he is as much ours as anybody else. How did that happen? A formal covenantal procedure. Now, if a relationship disintegrates, conceivably, you have to restore this by formal aid, you know, going through formal motions. But what happened, sin, sin is the repudiation of one's, shall we say, honorific status in God's plan. Oh, that's good. I like that. We're not just grunt workers in his kingdom. Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, but you've crowned him with glory and majesty, which are divine qualities, and you have placed him over all things. This is not a, a, a servile office. What happened in the garden is we said, I'm not satisfied with that. I want to be on my own throne. I, and, and they re, rejected their status as the image of God and deputies of his rule on earth and tried to kick him off the throne. You will be like God, the serpent says. And that was their intent. And we've been doing that ever since. And it, it, it has led to, of course, all sorts of degradation and depravity and evil. And all you need to do is see what's happening in the Ukraine these days. And you see the effects of sin. It's people refusing to be images of God as God intended. So that's what makes a covenant necessary. Uh, the covenant that God made with the cosmos was about the corruption we brought on everything. And God said, I'm not satisfied with that. I'm not, I'm not finished with the world. I'm going to recreate it. And here's how we start. 
there must have been something going on between God and Adam and Eve as he, as he kicked them out of the garden. Because in the next chapter, four of Genesis, Abel is bringing offerings to God, which God accepts. How did that happen? God must have revealed to him a way or declared to him, I know that you have rebelled against me, but I'm, put, I'm putting my stock in you. And here's how we can continue to relate. We have no reference to a covenant yet. But my hunch is that underlying it, you have a divinely initiated means of celebrating relationship with God. They don't call it covenantal yet. It doesn't, the, the word occurs for the first time in chapter 6, verse 18 or 19. I will establish my covenant with you. But something is happening here that sets the stage for, you know, all that uh, comes later on. But uh, in the uh, Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve, in his day, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. How did that happen? My hunch is that God had revealed to them his eagerness to continue to fellowship with them. And we just have summary statements of how that was working. We don't have detail. And it's left in, well, by the time you get to Abraham, they're offering sacrifices. When Noah comes out of the ark, they offer sacrifices of fellowship and thanksgiving. Interestingly, these are not called sin offerings. The peace offerings and whole burnt offerings. You know, these are moments of fellowship. But, of course, the Israelite system of offerings dealt with the problem of sin for everybody. And, uh, you know, who desired access to the forgiveness and God provided a way. Wonderful. So one last question. Um, salvation. Yes. What is salvation? In light of your research, in light of evaluating covenant as kind of like an axiomatic concept or understanding yeah. how yeah. God brings redemption, putting right that yeah. which went astray because of yeah. human sin. Yeah. How would you define what it means to be saved? Well, the first question we have to ask is saved from what? And in scripture, you'll find several answers to that one. Saved from the effects of sin. Everything's put right. But I think the bigger one is saved from the fury of God. Yes. Salvation has through Jesus taking on himself the wrath of God. Our sin. A way has provided whereby. The deserved fury of God is deflected and taken care of. Salvation means that my sin 
are blotted out. When the angel comes to Matthew, not Matthew, to Joseph at the beginning of Matthew, he says, you shall call his name Jesus. Where's that come from? Well, that's Joshua. It's, and that's not about Joshua. Moses renames Hosea as Joshua in light of the saving work in the Exodus. God rescued Israel from the sin and oppression of Pharaoh. And that becomes the metaphor. He will, you shall call his name Jesus, Yahweh, for he will save his people. Now we're talking something far bigger than Pharaoh. From their sins, the people's sins. And it's not only that the sins hold them in bondage, which they do, but it's also that because of sin, God's fury is unleashed. In that statement, he doesn't talk about, you know, nullifying the fury of God. His focus is on the sin that binds like Pharaoh bound. Salvation is freedom from that. Now, how do we experience that? We experience that in, shall we say, drips and drabs or stages in this world. We live in the already, but not yet. But so did the Israelites. They enjoyed salvation knowing that God delighted in them when they delighted in him. That divine favor was demonstrated largely in, you know, what we call human flourishing. God promises if, 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 if you live faithfully having been redeemed, it's not the way of redemption. It is a response to redemption. If you respond to your salvation with obedience and faithful living joyful obedience then the mission will be fulfilled and your personal appetites will all be satisfied in the here and now there's not much talk about the afterlife though they do talk about they do talk about going to your grave in peace which means you're exiting this world knowing you are right with God and God is right with you. And you commit yourself to him in that other world. Now, their perception of death was not as non-existence. If you read the, and it's all metaphorical because they could only imagine. But when they talk about the dead in Sheol, they're all living. They're conscious of where they are. And they're conscious that there are compartments in Sheol, some for the horror, horrible, horrible. And Jesus picks up on this in, in his parable of Lazarus and Dives, where you've got the bosom of Abraham on the one hand and where uh, this, this rich guy is. You know, so that, that metaphor is there too. But there is a sense and a hope in 
afterlife. It's not spelled out explicitly, but there is that hope that all is well between God and me, and we hope in that. Now, of course, on this side of the cross, we have so much more revelation that we enjoy the same sense of well-being in the already but not yet, but we know so much more about the not yet. God will, John 3.16 is a cosmic text. God so loved the cosmos. Now, I know that in the Gospel of John, cosmos often means the people of the world. It often does. It's clear. But in this case, I don't think we should limit it to the people. God so loved the cosmos. Or let's translate it more precisely. God demonstrated his covenant love for the cosmos in this, that he gave his one and only son. And here God has the ultimate restoration of the universe into what God had intended for it from the beginning. So that salvation to me is not about when we all get to heaven. We were not created to be heavenlings. There are people who are at home in the heavens. We're not. We are earthlings of the earth, earthy. And ultimately, our salvation is an eternal existence on the place where God put us. That's how I see it. And this is the true salvation for those who believe. And there's a resurrection of the righteous to life everlasting. And of course, sadly, the resurrection of the uh, wicked to punishment everlasting. So, so that, that's how I would interpret that. Knowledge of sin I, forgiveness, of sins forgiven, is cause for celebration, and that's salvation. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's interesting how when you think of, when you approach the issue directly through the lens of covenant, which of course our Bibles are arranged around that very concept, and the yep. Bible is the story of God's mission to redeem the world, yep. we can't talk about that without covenant being our frame, then it changes where some of the emphasis ends up landing when we talk mm -hmm. about what salvation is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's interesting how in the medieval context, the reformers that greatly obviously have impacted the way that we think about salvation as Western Christians in the 21st century uh, comes from the contextual issues that they were facing during that day. And the emphasis oh ends, ends up landing kind of somewhere else. And we kind of have to rediscover as our own generation what the scripture is emphasizing. Because I think what the reformers are emphasizing is scriptural, but is that the syllable that the emphasis landed on in the scriptural message? Um, and, and that helps us, I think, readjust to be speaking and thinking about salvation in a more biblical way. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think that's right. We all read the text with preconceptions. Sure. And the, and the reformers did too. And a lot of what they were doing was colored by their struggles 
with the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, with their own depravity and, 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 and the pathetic world in which they lived. So it colored everything. And, and also, of course, their Aristotelian framework, right. you know, the, the passion and the drive to reduce everything to formulas uh, and rules and principles that operate. The, the Bible is an Eastern work. It is. Biblical. It's a story more than a it, formula. It is. It is. And so it's hard for us Westerners to adopt the mindset of the biblical authors. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to overcome. There's a lot of gap to fill. But when you inhabit the text, which is why I love having people like yourself on who have spent a career and a lifetime, decades, inhabiting the text and inhabiting the language and inhabiting the culture and the world of the text, um, it, it helps us. It helps us. So thank you. Again, uh, with us, Dan Block, uh, uh, his most recent book, Covenant, the Framework of God's Grand Plan of Redemption. Make sure you go out and get a copy. It's available on all sorts of locations, published by Baker, and uh, the most common places you'd find that would be on Amazon. Dr. Block, thank you so much for your work and for spending time with us today. My great pleasure, and may the Lord be with you and everybody who hears you in whatever aspect of ministry he puts you. God bless thank, you. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. Until next time, this is Seminary Unboxed.